This morning, many of us gathered with friends from Trinity United Methodist around the donkey named Coconut. (laughs) Yeah. We will hear today again the story of Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, doubtfully sharing that name. However, listen now as we share in a very important part of our life as a people of God. Chapter 19, verses 28 through 40 in Luke. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were went, or those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our pastor emeritus, George Perra, came in today and announced to me, yeah, that's you, George, (laughs) and announced to me that he had chosen Jesus Christ over Tiger Woods this morning. (laughs) I I think that's probably a good thing. (laughs) I was also told by one of our ushers that there might be a lot of people looking down today. and not praying, but that's fine as well. It is a regret of my life, perhaps not beyond repair, that I have not read more of Shakespeare. Like many of you, I have seen Macbeth. I can recognize to be or not to be as part of Hamlet's soliloquy, and I can say with the best of us, O Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? But as an adult, I've only read four or five of Shakespeare's plays in their entirety. These have been a labor of love, but labor indeed. When I first started preaching, I encountered a phrase from Shakespeare's As You Like It that has stayed with me for obvious vocational reasons. And this our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees Books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. 
It is the sermons in stones part that I remember. I assume Shakespeare got this phrase from Luke's version of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the scripture reading that forms our gospel lesson for today. As Jesus rides into town on on a colt that has never been ridden, his followers welcome him not with the palm branches that we find in John and from which this Sunday gets his name, but with their own cloaks strewn across the ground in front of him. These followers then cry out in joy, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke quickly notes voices of dissent that arise from some of the Pharisees, Jewish leaders whose major interest is not to upset the apple cart of peace in which they seek to live quietly under Roman rule. They say to Jesus, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. Order them to keep quiet. Order them to cease and desist. But Jesus answers, I tell you, if these followers of mine were silent, if these followers of mine were silenced, the stones would shout out. 1,500 years later, Shakespeare coined the term sermons in stones. I want to explore this phrase, sermons in stones, along with two others surrounding it from Shakespeare, exempt from public haunt and good in everything. I want us to see what these three phrases have in common with Luke. And what both Shakespeare and Luke can teach us about living in the city in which we live, in the nation in which we live, in the time and place in which we live. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. First, the phrase exempt from public haunt. In As You Like It, a small group of people have been exiled to the forest of Arden from their life in the medieval court away from the highest pinnacles of political power and prestige into which most of them have been born and all of them have spent their adult working lives. They find the opportunity to rebuild their lives in the natural surroundings of a lush forest. An exiled duke speaks, Hath not old custom made this life in the forest sweeter than that of painted pomp? Are not these woods freer from peril than the envious court? Here the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter's wind are counselors that feelingly persuade me what I am. Part of his becoming who he is 
leads the Duke to find and speak eloquent wisdom. Sweet are the uses of adversity, he says, which like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. In addition, several major characters in the play, likewise freed from the pressures of statecraft, find the powerful force of human love. Thus, in As You Like It, the time away from political power and prestige frees the characters for wisdom and love. Exempt from public haunt, free from painted pomp and envious court, they are feelingly persuaded to become who they are. In this regard, Shakespeare's characters are like Jesus' disciples, who particularly in Luke find one find in Jesus one who transcends the immediate dreams and desires of their nation, one who, in a sense, is exempt from public haunt. Follow me closely at this point. In Matthew's Gospel, on Palm Sunday, Jesus is welcomed as Son of David. In Mark... He is welcomed as one who brings the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. And in John, he is welcomed as the king of Israel. By contrast, in Luke, Jesus is simply welcomed as the king who comes in the name of the Lord and who brings peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. In Luke, there is no mention either of David or of the nation's name, Israel. Thus, it is fair to say that the greetings in Matthew, Mark, and John are more specific, more localized, and perhaps even more nationalistic than those in Luke. By contrast, in Luke, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is less associated with the political and military might of the nation's past and more associated with the promise proclaimed at his birth, also in Luke, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. By the same token, the faith of those who welcome Jesus in Luke lies more in their welcome of the transcendence of his kingdom rather than the nationalistic overtones and feelings they may have. Thus, in Luke, Jesus transcends immediate political desires and dreams of the people who are welcoming him, legitimate as those dreams and desires are. Thus, it strikes me that in both As You Like It and in Luke's depiction of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, this transcending of the desires and dreams of the nation holds something in common. In a brief setting in which people are free from public haunt, they find tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, 
sermons in stones, and good in everything. People find life when they are in touch with that which transcends the intense life of politics and statecraft which consumes their work, their dreams, their conversations, their relationships. Exempt from public haunt, they find what is most important. Now the second phrase is sermons in stones. The exemption from public haunt is not an exemption from truth or public responsibility. In fact, what is so important about this phrase that Shakespeare coins from Jesus is the promise it contains that even if all voices of faith, reason, truth, beauty, hope, love, and civilization are silenced, truth will not only still be spoken, but it will prevail. If these were silent, Jesus says, if these were silenced, the stones would shout out. Sermons in stones. One of my late mentors, Dr. Fred Craddock, writes of Jesus' forceful statement, some things simply must be said. God will provide a witness, though every mouth be stopped. Truth will come out. It will not be silenced. Concerning As You Like It, Shakespearean scholar Ralph Sargent writes, All of the exiled characters who have gone, for, gone through their period of reformation in the forest will not stay in the forest, but they will return to court there to play their renewed part in civilized life. Exempt from public haunt does not mean taking a perpetual pass from the matters of society. In fact, it means returning renewed and transformed to play a renewed part in civilized life, confident, confident, confident that truth is going to prevail. Sermons in stones. The third phrase that Shakespeare uses is good in everything. It is a phrase that we all want to believe, but do not always seem to have the capacity to believe. I do not have any wiser assessment of our present state of affairs than anyone else in the sanctuary today. I have neither abundant confidence in the future nor panicked fear about it. And I have certainly stopped making predictions. But I cannot help but wonder, can we trust that the sermons in stones we are promised to hear and called to speak will actually lead to good in everything. It's not only Shakespeare about whom I want to learn more, but it is also history, even though I majored in it. 
Lately, I've been reading a lot of history, including the recently published biography of Winston Churchill, one of the many world figures about whom I have known far too little. To make up for this, I am now exactly 741 987ths through the recent not short biography published about Churchill. Just do the math. One event from Churchill's life recently stuck, stuck out to me. On December 13, 1941, six days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Churchill set sail to visit President Roosevelt in the White House to offer support and once again to enlist America's entry into the war against Nazism. Churchill stayed for nearly three weeks on this visit, including over Christmas Day. He joined a ceremony on the White House lawn on Christmas Eve, a ceremony around the national Christmas tree. President Roosevelt invited him to speak. And on that dark and fearful Christmas Eve, Churchill said to the American audience gathered, almost the whole world is locked in deadly struggle and with the most terrible weapons that science can devise, the nations advance upon one another. Yet he continued, let the children have their night of fun and laughter. Let the gifts of Father Christmas delight their play. Let us grown-ups share to the full in their unstinted pleasures before we turn again to the stern task and the formidable years that lie before us. Resolved that by our sacrifice and daring, these same children shall not be robbed of their inheritance and shall not be denied their right to live in a free and decent world. Churchill then concluded, and so, in God's mercy, a happy Christmas to you all. Standing before an American audience recently traumatized by attack, speaking during one of the two most important weeks in the Christian year, Churchill spoke a word of challenge and hope. Today, less traumatized than we were after Pearl Harbor, but perhaps more confused as a nation, those of us who are Christian stand at the beginning of the other most important week in the Christian year. Over the course of this upcoming week, whether you are in worship here, in worship somewhere else, traveling, or just aware of what's going on, we will commemorate that Christ was adored by the crowd that welcomed him and then turned on 
by that same crowd. We will commemorate that he was betrayed, arrested, tried, and convicted. That he was abandoned by his closest followers. That he was mocked and beaten. And then that he was publicly executed. We will see his body placed in a tomb and the tomb sealed. And then we will see people close to him find the tomb empty and encounter him in a way that they do not immediately recognize him. We will see him reach out or speak to each of them, Mary, Thomas, Peter, in a way that fits who each of them is and enables them to trust that he who is standing before them strange and mysterious and transformed, is indeed the Christ they have been following, now risen from the dead. Thus, as we enter this week we call holy, we will see the most important truth of all. The truth that this ruler who rides into town on a colt cannot be silenced by any human power or any human authority. Neither painted pomp, envious court, winter's wind, or adversity ugly and venomous can silence the sermons in stones that he preaches by his life, death, and destiny and to which he calls us to bear witness after our times of being renewed, exempt from public haunt. So as I look at the events to come this week, and as I look and try to keep up with our world, jumbled and limping as it is, I am still able with Shakespeare to trust however faintly that there is good in everything. And based on what I know and have experienced of the one who rides into town on a colt, I am able to echo Churchill and say with confidence, a happy, holy week to us all. Amen.